You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today's episode falls into what we would call the science category, and specifically we're going to be talking about a recently completed graduate student study uh, that focused on body mass trends of hunter-harvested mallards in Arkansas. Joining me for this episode is the graduate student involved in this study, John Vion from the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. As we like to do with all of our guests, we want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience, uh, both from a personal background as well as kind of professional, given where you are in your career right now. So tell us where you're from and how you came to Arkansas, University of Arkansas, to study ducks. Yeah, so I am originally from Texarkana, Arkansas, so I grew up in southwest Arkansas. I was a big duck hunter since, you know, I was 10 or 11 years old. So I grew up hunting Millwood Lake. And uh, from then on, I uh, got really into the science of it and started thinking about those bigger questions. And then I uh, went to college in Conway, Arkansas, Hendricks College. And under an advisor, Dr. Marie McClung, I kind of picked up uh, some waterfowl research looking at disturbance on waterfowl specifically noise, uh, in combination with an internship through the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. So I started to get to ask those questions that also related back to uh, waterfowl management. And after that, I decided to um, pursue a graduate career and, uh, and make a big career out of waterfowl science. And with that, uh, and with the help of some folks through the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, I'd I started putting some applications out to different grad schools and it lucked out that I got to stay at home and uh, work with uh, Mallards through the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. So. And so your, your research recently uh, completed, right? We're recording this here in October of 2021. And so you, mm -hmm. I think your target date for completion of your thesis and then kind of moving on to other things in your life is sort of December of later this year? Exactly. So we finished the last field season uh, the last youth hunt of the Arkansas duck season, which was uh, February of 2021. And uh, I plan to defend all this work uh, towards the end of November, early December. So, And you're a lifelong hunter, been involved with Ducks Unlimited for quite a while, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a big uh, thing that I credit Ducks Unlimited for is um, I actually met our Arkansas program coordinator for waterfowl, Luke Naylor, uh, through the Ducks Unlimited Greenwing Camp, now called DU Varsity. And that was when I was about 15 or 16, so 10th grader in high school. And so I got to meet George Dunklin and some of those guys, so former DU president. 
And Luke kind of took me under his wing ever since then with, from the waterfowl science perspective. Um, and so it was kind of the spark in my uh, science journey from a very, very young age. Um, little did I know at the time, but <laughs> and here we are today. <laughs> yeah, you were you and I talked a, a fair bit prior to this and, and your your background, you know, your secondary education background is really interesting. We don't have to get into all the details, but you were actually on a path to like medical school or something. Yeah, like that, it's right? it's pretty funny. Yeah. I originally that and that's what I joke about is Hendricks College is uh, a big feeder for the medical sciences. And so a lot of my friends are, you know, pharmacy, dental school over, you know, over here in Memphis. And I've got a, a, a lot of friends at UAMS, uh, so University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. So I was immersed in that all the time. And I didn't, you know, really get to make that switch or know that I wanted to switch into waterfowl science, that that was kind of what I was good at until I, um, till they went off and I didn't go immediately into med school. I took a gap year. And so that gave me some time to think and really feel about or think about what I was really passionate about. And so I decided, you know, it's the wildlife science, specifically waterfowl. And I've, I've gone that route and haven't looked back. So well, that's awesome. We're glad to have you. And one of the reasons that we have you here and have you on this episode is similar to, to the way we like to hear from the other students that are conducting research across North America is that Ducks Unlimited science-based organization, we look for new information all the time to help us answer some of the most pressing questions that we have that we need in order to, to do a better job managing habitats, conserving habitats, and as well as our state partners and federal partners all our partners across the waterfowl management enterprise to do a better job with the resources that we have. Your study is one of the many, probably over a hundred such studies that we as a family of Ducks Unlimited organizations are involved in. We're providing some financial support mm-hmm. for your your study. And your study and you were the were the subject of a little spotlight. We, we're producing a couple of science reports now as a family of organizations. One is an international science report where we introduce and briefly describe all the different studies that we are involved in. The other is a science spotlight report where we go into a little more detail on a subset of those projects. Yours was one of those in the science spotlight report. I encourage folks to go online and you can search for Ducks Unlimited science reports and you should, um, one of the primary hits that comes back should be um, the Ducks Unlimited webpage for those reports. And I encourage you to go look at those and learn about all the different types of research that we're supporting. And so John Vion here is, is featured in that science spotlight report. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to have you on and, and hear about just one example of, of the, the, these science projects that we're helping support. Mallards in Arkansas is always a popular topic. Mallards, Arkansas, and hunting. Those three things, you know, that, that, that's a pretty attractive combination, right? It is, it is, it is. <laughs> Now, did you did you grow up hunting uh, the bottomland forest, the Green Tree Reservoirs in Arkansas, or were you um, were you more more associated with some of the other types of habitats where we find waterfowl? Some of the places I grew up specifically uh, down in Southwest Arkansas, it's kind of you know boggy and swampy, so you're you're closer to the Louisiana border. And one of the places I grew up hunting a lot was Mercer Bayou, so it was more cypress type timber um, that I would hunt in. So I grew up more of in a timber aspect and then I would hunt Bodark Wildlife Management Area, which was a traditional green tree reservoir um, that was, you know, artificially flooded each year or controlled, I should say. Um, And so I kind of hunted around a mix of flooded timber. And as a kid, it was a big deal to get to go 
to East Arkansas and hunt over a rice field. But then, you know, I, I always fall back on and say that there's nothing prettier than a duck <laughs> flying into the into the flooded timber. So, so given your experience and history as a waterfowl hunter, the subject of your of your research is one that you probably thought a lot about. It relates to trends in body mass of harvested mallards both within a winter as well as over the long term, right? So as hunters, you know, you, you harvest a bird and you pick it up and you and some birds have a lot of heft to them. Other birds mm-hmm. feel uh, kind of scrawny, you know, and so there are a lot of uh, in, inherently we want to ask questions about, you know, well, why is this one really big and fat and mm-hmm. why is this one feeling a bit more emaciated? And there could be a number of different explanations for that. And it turns out there are, mm-hmm. uh, some of which are habitat related, some of which are just controlled internally, some of which could be related to age or sex or in maybe some injury or, or disease issue. So anyway, a lot of explanations for variation in body mass in, in ducks and really any, any kind of animal. But your study kind of took that to a sort of um, a scientific inquiry standpoint. And at this point, I'm going to kind of turn this over to you for you to describe sort of the, 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 the nature of the scientific questions you were asking, the importance of those questions, um, what we were trying to figure out. Exactly. So what, you know, we were interested in was how has specifically mallard body mass changed over time? And, and to give some preface on that, there's a few kind of pioneers that I look to in terms of my work. And um, the first first person would be Gieleman's work over in Europe, uh, looked at how body mass had changed over about a 30-year period, and body mass had increased over time, and uh, and had ge- given some reasons that, you know, most likely it's habitat management or climate. And then uh, then there was a rebuttal paper that came out uh, shortly after by Gunnarsson that said, you know, I think this is due to mallard intergression of domestic mallards. So the genetics piece there, I think Phil Loretsky uh, kind of looked into that in the U.S. Uh, so they talked, he talked about that and also maybe migrational distance. So this gets it, all those different factors you were talking about could be the reason. And then uh, Joe Fleskies had was the first person to really kind of look at some of this stuff over in the Central Valley of California and saw that body mass had increased over time and kind of speculated on habitat management. So all those different things, no one had really pinpointed what's the exact cause. Um, and no one's really looked at it in LMAV. And the reason body mass is important is it's... Now, let, me, let me back you up. That You said LMAV. Yeah. I know what that is, okay. but a lot of our listeners <laughs> are not going to be. So let's translate. Yeah so, so, yeah. so in the lower Mississippi alluvial valley, uh, body mass has not been uh, looked at just yet and to see how those trends have changed over time. And so... What we wanted to do was investigate that and also try to figure out, are there reasons for these different trends or, that are specific to the lower Mississippi alluvial valley? So, um, and, that, and the other thing is, is that body mass is important to a duck because it can be directly related to energy acquisition across the landscape. So, you know, usually a heavier duck is more indicative to getting the resources they need to survive the winter as compared to a more scrawny duck. And so that can be a good measurement tool to see how the duck, the status of ducks are from a wintering perspective. And, and so then from a manager perspective, let's say your partner, one of the partners of this project, uh, Ducks Unlimited is one, but let's mm-hmm. go to the state partner, primary state partner here is Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Why mm-hmm. is this an interesting question to them? Yeah. So from a management perspective, you kind of want to know other than you know, whether your habitat is, is right. So is, is there enough food on the ground for the ducks? Um, you, you want to know, you know, maybe are there certain management techniques that are, um, being employed at the moment? Is the habitat, 
you know, are, are those management techniques proven to be good management techniques and are the ducks just not responding for some reason? Um, and in that case, maybe you need to think about, you know, if we think about Phil Lovaretsky's work, maybe there's a genetic component that's causing them to change over time. Um, so this gives us a good idea uh, to, you know, assess the ducks and look at what we've been doing and see if there's some sort of correlation between those two things um, or if there isn't. And, you know, that helps somebody like Luke Naylor, our Arkansas Game and Fish Commission Waterfowl Program Coordinator, respond to that and uh, help make uh, decisions with the commission. Because I, their primary goal from a winter, autumn and winter waterfowl habitat management perspective is to provide the resources that ducks need. And that's primarily mm-hmm. food that we're talking about. And ducks need food to survive. They need food to uh, improve their body condition, prepare themselves for migration north, mm-hmm. arrive at the breeding grounds in good condition so they can hopefully produce a lot of, exactly. lot of little ducklings. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. Well, let's talk a little about, uh, I guess, some of the specifics of your particular study. And I guess the what probably the best way to frame this up sort of from a, a scientific type thinking perspective, what were the primary questions that you were, that you set out to answer? That's one of the things that we always think about when we, when we construct a, a scientific study. It's like, what's our What's the question? What are we trying to answer here? And so let's put some some more specifics on that with regard to your uh, your project. Yeah. So from from very general terms, we wanted to see if body mass had changed over time. Uh, so that was that was a big key component. And as you know, to have data over time, we had to have some very generous donors: uh, Kenneth J. Reinecke, Brad Dabbert, David Kremens. Um, uh, researchers that have collected data over time from 1979 to 2021 and some of my personal collections throughout time. So we collected that to look at body mass over time. That was our one of our big questions. And that's like average body mass by winter. Like for, I, I guess the, the most general way of looking at that is to see, ask the question, have mallards gotten fatter or leaner since mm-hmm. the 70s relative exactly. to right now? Yep. Exactly. Yep. And and there's all sorts of science and math that goes into it, but um, but yeah, we basically collect all those data points and we you know throw that in our models and we can look at if, see if that trend is actually there. So we did, we looked at that. Um, that was kind of our big question. Our questions following up from that was we wanted to look at some reasons for maybe those trends. And and I preface with it's it's not uh, causative. It's all it's cor- correlative. So we looked at. Um, you know, how does uh, waterfowl body mass respond in the presence of rainfall events, uh, rising river levels, also severe cold weather. And then other than year, we wanted to see how body mass changes over the course of the duck season. So from day one to the ending day of duck season. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. There's a lot of research related to that particular question, uh, and I think if, if I could, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but generally, and this has been found in some captive studies, it's also been found in some other uh, studies of wild ducks. Uh, upon arrival on the breeding grounds, waterfowl tend to be in pretty good condition, pretty fat. 
but then they slowly go through a decline until, let's say, late winter, at which time they start to really beef up again, prepare for the uh, northward migration. And so there's been a lot of speculation and investigation into uh, what might be driving that decline, that seasonal decline. And some of that's thought to be kind of internally controlled. Is, is that right? Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, there's all these different speculations. And one of the coolest ones is talking about spring departure weight. Uh, so what a duck can do is endogenously control its body mass levels so that by the time the spring arrives, they're of a lean enough mass that they can get to the breeding grounds quick. Because you know as well as me, Mike, that the, you know, the faster duck that gets there, the more fit they are to survive that spring breeding season. So, you know, being able to be fat enough to survive, but also lean enough to fly efficiently and get there quickly is kind of a goal in their head. And and it's amazing that they can do that. (laughs) So they're trying to optimize that body condition for all the different things that they have to do during that autumn and and winter and then prepare for what they're going to do in the spring. Exactly. They're always thinking ahead. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty complicated equation going on in their mind. And again, I've said this many times. I don't know if duck actually think and make these individual decisions based on some level of foresight, but nevertheless, it is what we see, right? Exactly. Uh, So I was really intrigued about the length of this data set. You had data on mallard body mass from pretty good study region, pretty consistent study region, dating back to the late 70s. That's remarkable in itself. Now, what was the source of those data? Were they thinking about this and saying, hey, periodically we need to be collecting this data or were these data points associated with other periodic studies that that occurred? That's the first question. The other is just to put a finer point on your study area, kind of outline that for us uh, mentally. Yeah. So uh, essentially with where the data came from, it's a mixture of what what you're talking about there. So Kenneth J. Reinick, I have to give a lot of credit to him. Uh, He was the one that originally was kind of pursuing this uh, type of work, but he had a former study that contributed some body mass points. And then uh, there was a certain time from there. And then he also contributed some data that wasn't used for anything yet, but that he was wanting to use for this type of study, um, but hadn't done anything with it. And then as originally that was our data set was from 79 to the early 2000s. And then uh, we picked some other waterfowl scientist brains about projects they had done in the area that they may have collected body mass. And so we uh, talked to uh, Dr. Brad Daver at Texas Tech. He had some data for the mid 90s, which was great. Um, and then David Kremens had collected some data on his own um, in and amongst some students. And so that helped us get some uh, late two th- mid to late 2000s data. And so we've kind of got these spots um, that are, uh, you know, kind of helps us spread out that time and get a good picture. So it's really remarkable over time. So I really am thankful for those who donated. Um, in terms of our study area for our linear study, looking at body mass over time, the data was from the entire Arkansas LMAV. Um, so I mean, the Arkansas Delta. Yeah, Arkansas Delta. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, you know, you know, everywhere as far as south as uh, southeast Arkansas, so down around McGee, Arkansas, all the way up to northeast Arkansas near Jonesboro. So we traveled all the time. Most of our funding went, <laughs> went towards gas money. Um, but also some of our uh, historical data came from just slightly past the Mississippi River into Mississippi. Um, so it was just slightly across the uh, border there. So we've got a, a little bit of a mixture between Arkansas and Mississippi. And let's talk about where these ducks came from. They were hunter harvested ducks, right? Mm -hmm. And how did you get your hands on? I think there was like over the course of, well, I don't, what was the total number of ducks that contributed to this data set when you look all the way back to the 70s? Yeah. So over all of our data, we had about 6,300 data points. And how did you get access to measurements of six, over 6,000 
um, harvested mallards. Yeah. So besides the besides being you know sent a uh, a nice Excel spreadsheet from former researchers, what kind of went into the collections was uh, you know showing up sim- something as simple as showing up to duck hunting clubs or public land boat ramps, sometimes duck plucking stations. So our like bird harvesting areas where people can pay to have a bird or bird uh, processing areas where uh, a hunter can pay to have that bird processed. We would post up at those places and as hunters would come out from their hunts, they would bring their bag limits to their trucks and we'd say, hey, uh, you care if we weigh a duck and maybe take a wing from it and told them what we were doing. And, and that's the great thing about the waterfowl community is very passionate about science. So we would, we would do that. And I think we would collect anywhere from on a bad day, maybe one or two to, uh, I think our biggest day was 90 at a boat ramp. So, and, and you found hunters very cooperative? Very. I didn't have one hunter refuse, which is the remarkable part. So thanks to all you hunters that may have contributed to that, uh, if any of you are listening to this, and your contributions to any other study of this nature, there's always, just about every single year, there's going to be a graduate student or two or a half dozen or more out across the landscape trying to collect data, asking to collect data from from hunters or, or other other folks that are out there. Um, so thanks for your contributions in that regard, hunters. And um, just another ways that you contribute to our, our, our knowledge base and our interest in managing better. So let's talk a little bit more. Uh, I guess let's move on now to, um, I guess we've, you've collected, uh, so you have this historical data that takes you back to the late 70s. You collected some new data from the past couple of years, uh, hunter harvested birds. And so we kind of have to just recognize that these are hunter harvested birds. There's probably some bias there, you know, with regard to body condition of hunter harvested birds. We've talked about that before mm-hmm. with some other guests, but nevertheless, the birds, all the birds in the data set are of these hunter harvested variety. And what did you do at that point when you have this, this data? And then what did, I guess you could even jump right to, what did you find uh, if you want to, in terms of the, the trend in body mass of mallards over time? Yeah. So essentially, you know, we collected, we, we made sure to collect that body mass. We aged those birds. We they they each had their own respective age and sex bracket. So you know, from adult males to juvenile females, and so we set up their own individual models. And um, yeah, so we uh, basically over time found that body mass had increased, uh, which was uh, quite interesting because it aligns with all the research that's out there from Europe to U.S. So which is really interesting. And so we had we also collected the the weather data. So weather data consisted of uh, rain rainfall, um, that river gauge data. So we look at the height of the rivers and then also how uh, severe cold weather is a calculation we used there. Um, and, you know, body mass tended to uh, be, you know, positively related. So it increased with uh, rainfall. So when rain was higher on rainier days, it was higher versus um, days that were uh, less rainy. And then same thing with river gauge. When the rivers were higher, ducks were fatter. And so we, we saw that trend as well as um, with, but there was not much of a relationship with weather severity. Uh, so with cold, severe weather, which is really interesting because it means they're just really tough. <laughs> now, you said something there that that I want to dig into just a moment. So with regard to the precipitation date, so you had, you knew the date on which each of these birds was harvested, right? Mm -hmm. Like all 6,000 or so of them, right? Mm -hmm. So then you looked at precipitation trends on the days immediately preceding that harvest, right? So there have been some other studies that have correlated average body mass over an entire winter to some metric of overall precipitation as as a surrogate or index of 
habitat conditions for the entire winter. Mm-hmm. Yours took a little different tactic, right? Yep. It was a more it was a little more of a specific approach. So because we had all this data and knew these dates, we wanted to do a little more fine scale. So we took about a uh, three-day period, consecutive days, so days one, two, and three before the day of harvest. And we looked at, um, from a rainfall perspective, the total amount of rainfall within that three-day period. We felt that three days um, would capture what a duck was experiencing before the harvest. Um, so that, that gave us a good indication um, without getting too crazy with a length of time uh, that it may not have experienced. So yeah, so that's what we, we looked into. And so that suggests then that over time, um, either we've had uh, a change in precipitation patterns or such that we're getting, maybe we're getting more more rain or maybe it's some combination of rain as well as enhanced habitat management capabilities. Do we know anything about yeah, what might so, be? And, and so this gets back to that, that correlative aspect where, you know, rainfall and river height did have a relationship with waterfowl body mass, but we can't just pinpoint and say that's the reason. So uh, the other two the other things that we can look at are habitat management and just through some, you know, conversations with Luke Naylor and through uh, some of the more controversial stuff that's happened recently with, with the uh, flooded timber where they're having to bring the water levels down, our habitat isn't the best as it has been. So we don't know if that's really the primary cause or we would we would lean away from that one. Um, one of the interesting ones is the introgression of game farm mallards that we're kind of speculating as well. Um, so we, we haven't found that direct answer, uh, but there, there's a couple thoughts that, that it also says that's a, uh, another cool research study for someone else. <laughs> you might have said this, and I I just missed it, failed to focus on it. Uh, you you talked about there was a positive relationship between precipitation and the, the three days preceding harvest. What did you find with regard to trend over the decadal sort of time scale from the late 70s to now? There was an increase in body mass on that as mm-hmm. well, right? Yeah, so from 1979 to present, there was, there were in all age sex groups, so adult males, adult females, juvenile males, juvenile females, they all increased in body mass. About like five or six percent or so yeah, yeah. that so, time period? So adult males were around like 5.6 percent and then it ranged all the way up to juveniles which were about 7.6 percent. And the interesting note about that is uh, Gilliman found an increase of 7.6 percent in his juvenile. And so what does that relate to in turn? What does that can translate to in terms of, I don't know, grams? Under gram, people, we, we Americans don't think in terms of grams. Really. Yeah, I think it's right around. I think I and don't quote me on it, but I think the the conversion came out to right around like twenty to forty grams. It was somewhere right around in that range. Yeah, I think that would sound. If I'm trying to do my, uh, what do we have? Uh, adult adult male was, was about a hundred uh, thousand grams, so, twelve hundred grams, something tw- like so that. So a female's usually. Uh, like a nice female is around 1,200 grams, okay. and an adult male would be around like 1,300 to 1,400. So we so, do yeah. the math there on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody can fact check us. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, what else do we need to know about that aspect of the study? Uh, probably glossed over a thing or two that may be important. Yeah. So we hit all those main topics, but the you know the only other variable we looked at was that day of duck season. And what we saw was body mass declining over the day of duck season um, for the most part. And so you know we talked about spring departure. Another thing you can think about is, uh, you know, resource degradation over time. Um, so, you know, especially when rice is harvested, what's laying there, depending on how early it was harvested, it becomes exposed to the elements. Or if there's certain tilling practices that hide it from the ducks um, and other animals get to the more exposed rice, some of that it gets harder to get to. So, you know, those resources become more scarce over time. So that was just another speculation for 
the day of duck season variable there. So we can look at your results kind of from a habitat management standpoint and say some combination of factors over time has, uh, it could be climate related, right? Mm-hmm. If we're experiencing on average warmer winters, maybe that alone could help explain this this trend in increased body mass. Maybe it's more precipitation. Maybe it's better habitat management. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, public and private investments have been made in habitat management mm-hmm. over the years. And so some combination of all of that is contributing to this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it interesting, just if I put myself in my in my hunter boots and think about what can I take from these findings, I mean, it, it sort of corroborates what we talk about often in terms of what birds do um, in terms of their, what, what stimulates movement patterns, changes in their movement patterns. We talk about stale ducks mm-hmm. uh, during some years whenever we have a lack of rainfall, warm temperatures, things of that nature. Ducks just get in a pattern and they don't change from that. But your study found that following some precipitation events, ducks got fatter, mm-hmm. which says that they are out there exploiting those newly available habitats, those newly available uh, food resources mm-hmm. and fattening up. Does that make sense? Yes, and that, and that's kind of what we would point to if when we investigate that that you know what's going on with the increased precipitation or increased uh, rivers um, or river height. And that was kind of the birthing of our river variable was talking to hunters and saying you know thinking about the White River in Arkansas when that river floods you better get into the flooded timber because the ducks are going to start pouring in there. You know for the most part it's all this untapped resource that now has water on it that a duck can access. And so that's that's what they're getting after. They're competing against each other trying to get that food. So, John, I know you had another, uh, a second chapter and sort of a different part of this study or, or a related part of this study where you were trying to relate habitat conditions in the surrounding landscape, you know, relative to where the bird was harvested. You're trying to determine if that surrounding landscape and the habitat conditions within it had any effect, measurable effect on the variation in body mass that you that you collected. Did Has anything come from that yet? Yeah. So we just, it's funny you mentioned that because literally just two days ago, we ran some very preliminary models on it. And what we did is we looked at a spatial scale of about um, around 30 kilometers. And someone probably need to do the conversions for me again for miles there. But, uh, you know, we looked at 30 kilometers has been previously found to be a distance that a duck will locally move without migrating. So we looked at that around our harvest sites uh, and looked at different variables and uh, or we looked at the percent uh, of that variable within that landscape circle. And so what we kind of found was water, again, was important. Uh, water, uh, we looked at the body condition of duck in this instance. It's just looking at – it's figuring in the wing length of the bird with body mass. Um, and so we looked at that in relation to these variables, and we saw that uh, water uh, – showed a positive trend with body conditions. So you saw increases in body condition with more percent water within that uh, circle. Um, woody wetlands, so you know anything that was made up of uh, woody vegetation, about 20% of that uh, area um, and higher was tended to be a uh, good indicator of a higher body condition in ducks. And then we also saw, interestingly enough, open water, uh, so lakes. Um, and, you know, kind of the research behind that is the thought that it's a good loafing area and a way to get away from hunters. Um, so, and then, you know, in terms of things that showed a negative body condition uh, was uh, soybeans. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, dietary issues with soybeans. It doesn't provide the most energy um, and also can lead to impaction issues where they, you know, somewhat choke uh, on that because it's hard to digest. Kind of the... Uh, 
last one we looked at was a kind of a disturbance variable um, due to like urban encroachment. So cities kind of expanding roadways outwards. There's a whole bunch that goes into that. Um, but we saw a negative uh, or we saw a body condition decrease in the presence of more human disturbance. Did you, in, in any of that analysis, did you try to decompose the landscape into different ownership categories, public versus private? So our original models were looking into that. Um, but the tough part about that is, and this, this might be an, a new research idea for somebody, and we're, we're still experimenting a little bit to see what we can get out of it. Um, something we do in the stats world is when you have two variables that are doing the same trend, you only pick one um, because they, they're going to show something regardless. So we looked at how these variables were all related to each other. I think we started with 13, including a private versus managed land. And those two variables were highly correlated with a lot of the variables I just talked about. Um, so, you know, we've kind of decided to make more of an approach of let's be more descriptive in showing these different habitat types, but then investigate, you know, from a more discussion perspective, what are we looking into from for, for management? So that's kind of the route we're taking right now. Now, but the the management and private land side can can start to get a little ambiguous based on uh, or you know hard to delineate. Um, no, I, I think that's a good point be, because that's the common temptation is to see if land ownership category makes a difference in mm-hmm. some aspect of waterfowl management that we're trying to measure, waterfowl biology, waterfowl management that we're trying to measure. But the reality is that both public and private land and the management and conservation that occurs on those lands is important. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't in many cases find a strong signal between public or private land in in some of the the metrics. Now, I'm sure there are some, depending on the question at hand, where you will find a particular relationship. But a lot of times we don't. It's like, okay, land ownership doesn't really matter all that much. Okay, well, that shouldn't be too surprising Mm -hmm. given the amount of investment that both public land managers and private land managers, private land owners do to manage and enhance their properties for for waterfowl and and other critters, right? Yeah, so it's a great point you make there because when we talk about waterfowl management, we you know, it's it's kind of a gray area. What what is waterfowl management from a land ownership perspective? And and so, you know, we think of management as being an action that we're doing to the landscape. And so there are some properties that you know, may have restrictions from a federal or state level that may be privately owned, but are paid to not touch it. Uh, as you know, you think about just natural wetland restoration. And from that perspective, it's more of a restrictive management practice and it, it gets left um, as opposed to maybe some land owned by Arkansas Game and Fish Commission where they're, you know, artificially flooding or controlling water levels or planting food resources. So it starts to get gray about what's, you know, managed and what's unmanaged. And then same thing for the private land side. You know, we don't always know whether uh, the degree of management is going into waterfowl habitat from private side, whether it's just, you know, agriculture that the duck is benefiting from, or there's certain management techniques being employed on like a duck club, for example, that's centered around ag. Um, there's it's there's just those different actions start to get a little gray. So sometimes with this kind of study where we can focus on types of habitat that we know those ducks utilize, it might give us a, a better picture and we can tie that back into uh, land ownership. John, this has been been a great conversation. We're going to wrap it up now. But before I do, I want to give you an opportunity to offer any final concluding remarks and then also ask you what's in the future 
for John Vion. Yeah. So, you know, as a concluding remark, just to hunters out there, I guess, you know, kind of a big takeaway is that ducks want to go where they can get a, a lot of energy for less. So they're going to go there. They don't want to be disturbed a lot. Um, so they're they're going to go to those they areas. They like to eat and not be killed. Shock, yeah, exactly. Shocker. Yep. So exactly. Yep. And that's what, the, that's what the data shows. So, you know, from a hunting perspective, you can think about, you know, getting away from the highly populated areas and, you know, learn about the habitat that you're hunting in. Learn about what that duck is using where you're hunting. And, and I think that's going to be a good takeaway there for, from a hunting perspective. But yeah. And in terms of my future, I plan, I really want to go into academia. I'm really inspired by my advisors over the years uh, and how they've kind of nurtured my love for waterfowl science. And I want to help churn out more waterfowl scientists. So I hope to go get my PhD after this and uh, get a job in academia and be housed at an institution doing more waterfowl research. That is awesome to hear. And I'm sure your uh, your advisors, your your mentors will be excited to hear that as well. And now they have you on record saying so. So uh, they might... Uh, yeah, now they have some ammunition to hold you to it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in that regard, let's kind of transition here to acknowledging the different funding or the different partners involved in this research. We say many times that no research, no management, no conservation is done alone. Uh, and that's, this, that's the case with your project as well. So who are some of the uh, notable partners that you want to acknowledge? So, uh, and I promise, unbiased opinion, but Ducks Unlimited is a big one for sure, uh, funded both field seasons and the ability to have a technician and which, you know, the work that was completed would not have been, I give him credit, Jacob Hewitt, um, who's up over on the East Coast now doing some waterfowl work. Um, so Ducks Unlimited, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission uh, from nurturing me as a scientist and also uh, getting us access and places to stay throughout the field season, U.S. Fish and Wildlife for the same reasons. And then University of Arkansas and uh, USGS also were big contributors uh, to to the project from, you know, just uh, from a regular resources standpoint from academia to uh, getting us federal resources when we didn't have what we needed, we could get it from another state, so... And then the hunters and landowners as well that were critical parts Definitely. of this research, Yeah, right? so so the hunters and landowners were a huge part and probably the, the one that we need to thank the most uh, because without them going out and shooting ducks, we would not have anything to study. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, especially those of you that spent countless hours driving birds to me, those of you who opened up your homes uh, and your clubs and even your uh, dinner and lunch tables to us uh, to take care of us as we uh, collected birds throughout this season. So thank you to all, all the hunters out there and landowners. John, thank you so much for being here. You've been a great, great guest, great topic. Everybody loves hearing about mallards. Uh, that's amplified a little bit whenever we talk about mallards in Arkansas because that's the that's the state for many years that has that holds the crown of harvesting more mallards than than any other state. And uh, this has been a pretty cool conversation. And we'll have some. Uh, we'll have Luke Naylor on some other time. And, you know, the other part of this conversation is like, how do managers use your data, your findings to enhance or change their conservation and management actions? And that's probably a question that Luke can help us with. And in mm -hmm. some cases, we may say, hey, the data show that we're still producing fat mallards and in fact, fatter mallards. And so we're doing a few things right anyway, right? Yep. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thanks for being here. And thanks for joining us on the DU podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, John Vion, a master student, soon to be a graduated master student from the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. 
As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does with these podcasts and getting them out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.